Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. At the end of the 70s, my band broke up. What am I going to do? Nobody likes my songs. I got nothing going for me. So instead of playing guitar and telling jokes, I started telling jokes and playing guitar. I never learned jokes to be a comic. I learned jokes because they were a lot of fun and made me popular. I was always the last guy at a party, the last guy telling jokes, the last man standing. You got a joke, he's got a joke, I got five. You got a joke, he got a joke, I got six. And I would always listen to people because I might get a new joke out of it. What do you like about jokes? And, and by a joke, you're like, it's like classic joke telling. Here's the premise, here's the punchline, boom. I tell jokes because I love to make people laugh. Because comedy and humor comes from tension. And poop and sex sets up more tension than anything else. And I like to tell a joke that was like punch you in the stomach and make you scream. I'm not a comedian. I'm a joke teller. But Jackie, what you did was you basically, no one was going to choose you and say, this is the next great comedian. But what you did was you chose yourself. So I have Jackie, the joke man, Martling on the podcast. Jackie was Howard Stern's, I don't know what you call it, sidekick, cohort, writing partner for 18 years. You were with him from the beginning on, almost the very beginning, all the way up to 2000. From his New York beginning, 1983, and then 1986 to 2001, I was like a cast member. You know, I wasn't really a sidekick. I uh, kind of. Uh, Robin was the main sidekick, but I was I was part of the cast, and uh, I was the head writer. And then uh, in two thousand one, you left, and Artie Lang basically took the role that you were playing. It, but uh, that's a, kind of a people got the wrong impression of because people. It's so funny because I done Artie's podcast a bunch of times, and he actually did the forward to the book I'm here promoting. Sure. And it's great because I did the audio book. But he recorded the forward. So I, he did the audio of the forward, which is so fun. But people say, oh, it's great to see you guys getting along again. He came on the Stern Show many months after I left. There was never any crossover, any animosity. He, him and I have been friends forever. And I, I don't feel like he replaced you. I feel like he replaced maybe that, you know, third person that was needed there for to, to balance off the... the um, uh, dialogue between Howard and Robin. They, they needed a comic voice in there. But it was a totally different role. Totally different voice. You're not him at all. Right. Uh, different style of comedy, everything. There's a couple interesting things you just said there that I want to dive into. I'm just going to bring up your book here. I read your book. I learned so many things about you. I do, of course, want to talk about Howard Stern. Even the title of the book is The Joke Man Bow to Stern, which I guess is a I just realized now for the first, this is what an idiot I am. I just realized now saying that, that you're making some kind of boating reference. <laughs> right. Well, I live on the water and I've always been from Bayville and talked about, you know, I don't own boats and never did. I'm not a fisherman or a clammer, but I've 
been a swimmer forever my entire life and i've you know the last 20 years of living on the water and it's just fantastic you know and, but i had no idea that was a boating reference i just thought you meant like you were kind of servile to, to right. start you know it's so funny because once and that's tongue-in-cheek because i never really was yeah but uh people say oh i just got it you know <laughs> oh i just oh about a stern i just got you know does that so, mean it's a bad title or a good title i mean it makes them think about it I, I think it's good. I think, you know, it's a gift that keeps on giving. I don't know. And you have to mention Stern in the title, I feel, even though I feel your career, and this is this is what I really wanted to say. I feel your career is more rich than just your time with Howard Stern. It shouldn't be just defined by those 18 years. Well, it, was a, it was a huge, huge hunk and put me on the map. But I've done, you know, even though it was maybe not a, uh, wonderfully exciting or that successful i've done a lot of stuff and and had some crazy times and a lot of fun so you know and and i definitely want to pull in the stern people of course yeah, you know you have to you know i wrote so much because i i just assembled stories and you know i hit a lot of dead ends trying to do this book and the deals fell through a couple of times i wound up with so many stories like the book is like 30 or 40 percent me and then it goes to the show but it's me on the show and the stories of yeah. the show I had that same exact book in my computer, only different, like 30% of me and 70% of the show, but completely different stories about my childhood and about college and about the Stern Show. It was like Sophie's Choice trying to write this book. Can I fit this in? I can't fit this well, in. Well, there's always the expression about writing, though, that you have to kill your darlings, and that's the that's the challenge of rewriting. It is a killer, right? And, and, and look, I thought the book was a good size. You hit many stories, you hit many arcs, I actually, I was really fascinated by, because I didn't know this about you at all, I was really fascinated by your time with Rodney Dangerfield. And I kind of wanted to talk about that. Just just by brief background though, you're a very funny guy. You were a stand-up comedian. You start, uh, you spent some time with Rodney Dangerfield. You sold some jokes to him. You traveled with him. Uh, you, did, you did a lot of stand-up. You had your own stand-up shows going. Uh, Howard Stern thought you were very funny. And then we'll 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 begin. We'll talk about your whole Howard Stern, your eighteen years with Howard Stern. You were kind of the the funny guy on on the Howard Stern show. Um, but I want to talk about just stand up and Ronnie Dangerfield first. Like, what got you into stand up? My whole life has been an odd. I always say it's like a pinball machine where the ball hits and jumps around because uh, I learned how to play guitar in high school because I, I told a guy, a friend of mine, who's still one of my best friends, my, my very best friend that I've known since I was five years old, and now I'm just about to be 70. He's- uh, You're about to be 70? Yeah, and I told him, I want to, um, you know, it's funny. I tell everybody I'm 70, because if you tell them you're 69, you got to go through the whole, ex the whole explanation. I'm not making a dick joke. I really am, you know, so I- I, I, I think I have a feeling you have to do that. Like when I'm <laughs> 69, I probably won't have to do right. that. So at any rate, I'm 69. And uh, so I said to my buddy, I, uh, you know, teach me how to play guitar. And he said, great, we got to teach you four chords. We could have a band. So in ninth grade, he taught me how to play guitar. We were, we had a band and we're not making much money, but we had gigs and we're playing before the Beatles hit, you know, for a couple of years. I mean, we're talking, playing Dion and the Belmonts and Lily Anthony Imperials. You know, I go way, way, way back. And um, then I played in college. And whenever I was in a band, I used to tell jokes, which did not fit. It doesn't fit for a guy in a band to tell jokes. But I, when I get people in front of me, it's I'm a, it's a disease. And I, my whole life, since I was a kid, all the jokes have stuck in my head. Right, like you know, like the whole thing with you is you know any joke. 
You do the the stump, the joke, man. Uh, get, if somebody calls up, gives a premise, and you would say the punchline. The, the thing is, I don't know all the jokes, and I get stumped all the time, but I know a lot of them. I can figure most of them out, and I probably know more jokes than anybody in the world, which is an odd calling. But I always assumed that everybody, every gut, a kid, every guy that grew up in America knew the jokes that I knew. I didn't realize I was sitting on a treasure trove, and one, one night, it's in my book how... I told a joke at Catch a Rising Star, and, and you know, and the MC came up later and said, hey, that was a great joke. And I'm like, well, you knew that joke. He said, no, I never heard. I'm like, how could the Catch a Rising Star MC not know that joke? And all of a sudden, I realized I'm sitting on a treasure trove. I mean, let me ask you a question, because I feel like a lot has changed in comedy and that the whole notion of a joke is different. So now a comedian gets up on stage and they usually tell some aspect of their own lives and they punch it up. It has always been like that. What I did was not a form of comedy. I just, see, I didn't, I had no intention of ever being a comedian. I was playing guitar to meet girls. And then I, I all I wanted to do, I was at Michigan State in East Lansing, Michigan for seven years. And all I wanted to do was have enough talent to be able to come home and make a living in some form of music or show business so I could live in New York and do what I love because there was no way I could do a straight job. I would have put a bullet in my head. So we played in this two-man group that became a three-man group that we played original songs and told dirty jokes. That's what we did. How much did you practice music every day during that time? No, I, you know, I played the songs when we got on stage. I was not as invested as I should have been. I spent a lot of time writing songs, but I never, you know, when you first learn guitar, you're voracious and learn every chord. And then all of a sudden the Beatles hit and there's more chords to learn. But then I stopped learning. I just wrote some songs and I had all these jokes. I had never had any intention ever of being a comic. And I falling in with Rodney Dangerfield was so happenstance. That's the greatest story in the book. That, you yeah, know, it's because my, it really my friend told me a lie. That's how I wound up meeting Rodney because he told me a lie. And I sent... I sent stuff to Rodney blindly, just like I sent stuff to Howard Stern blindly. Just like I sent stuff to Gershon Legman in the mid seventies, who's like the all time joke collector. But the average person has no idea who that is. But all these people responded to me. Well, I think, I think that's a very important lesson. You went to the top of the top, Rodney Dangerfield, you sent blindly. Cause you have nothing to lose. Right. So I took all the jokes I knew and typed them out to fit Rodney. I put them in the envelope wrote the address and mailed it because I had nothing to lose. And two days later, the phone rang and it was Rodney. It was like I sent him a bunch of stuff a bunch right. of times. Like I sent him stuff and bang, the phone rang. I said, who is this? He says, Rodney. I said, Rodney who? He said, oh, I knew you were funny. I knew, but he was my hero and I loved him, but not because I was a comic or had any aspirations of being a comic. I never listened to Bill Cosby and Robert Klein and all those. I listened to Red Fox to learn more dirty jokes, you know, and I loved Henny. But like Rod, Rodney Dangerfield, I still love listening to him. Like I'll, I'll let, he does the Carson, the seven minutes set, the seven minutes setting next to Carson. He just has that like persona and then bang, 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 it's bang. It's so flawless and so wonderful. And it's so boom, 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 boom. Like break it down. Why is he so good? Because there's no, there's no fluff. There's no extra meat. It's just like, it's punching the jaw, punching the jaw, punching the jaw. There's no filler. You know, it goes on and on. And if once in a while a joke misses a little bit, he's, oh, what happened? You know, where'd everybody go? You know, it, and it was so amazing. So that when, I, when he called me and I wound up, I, I only traveled with him for a couple of weeks, but I'm, I tell my, I'm still 
remembering things that happened because it was so, he was so, he was so him. There was no character. That was the guy. It was like when, when I first went to pick him up to go away, I said, you realize I'm going to laugh every time you open your mouth. He says, we'll have a party, you know? And so here I was with all these jokes. And at the end of the 70s, my band broke up. What am I going to do? All I got is jokes. I got, nobody likes my songs. I got nothing going for me. So instead of playing guitar and telling jokes, I started telling jokes and playing guitar. And I, I just tried telling these. I never learned jokes to be a comic. I learned jokes because they got me laid and because they were a lot of fun and made me popular. I was always the last guy at a party, the last guy telling jokes, the last man standing. You got a joke. He's got a joke. I got five. You got a joke. He got a joke. I got six, you know. And I would always listen to people till all time and night because I might get a new joke out of it. Well, what did you, I mean, I want to break <coughs> one of these things down. Like, what, what did you like about, what were your favorite jokes? What do you like about jokes? And, and by a joke, you're like, it's like classic joke telling. It's people, like, here's a premise, <clears throat> here's the punchline, boom. People say, uh, why do you have to tell dirty jokes? And it's so simple. I don't tell jokes to be cool. To, I tell jokes because I love to make people laugh. I want to make you laugh as loud and as hard as I can. And a dirty joke will just make you laugh hard. It's not that I care about saying penis or vagina or anything. I know that a dirty joke, because comedy and humor comes from tension. And poop and sex sets up more tension than anything else. You listen to an old Carson monologue, and he'll go on for seven or eight minutes about the world, about the country, about the state of music, and at the end of his monologue, he'll make an obscure penis reference and the roof would come down because that's where the tension is. And I like to tell a joke that was like punch you in the stomach and make you scream. So like, I I, I hate to ask because I don't want you to, to perform on demand, but like, tell me, tell me like one of your favorite jokes from back then. So, well, this isn't from back then. You know, it's so funny because- You uh, still do a joke a day on your on your joke line. I, 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 <laughs> Never stop with the jokes, but uh, it's so funny because I know all the jokes. And I had a, a show called Jackie's Joke Hunt on Sirius 101, which was one of Howard's channels for eight years. And we told every joke in the world, eight years of an hour of jokes every week. And it was just, I mean, it was tons and tons of repeats, but we told thousands. I mean, I broke out all my stuff and it was amazing. And one guy came on the show. And I send out jokes every month as part of a newsletter. Anybody's listening to this, if you email me, jokeland at AOL.com, if you email me your name and your email goes on and you get jokes once a month, it also says where I'm working, buy my book, but right. there's jokes and there's also kids' jokes to tell your grandkids. I'm, I'm a nut about this stuff, right? So this guy, Ed Hamill, amazing, amazing talent, comes in to do the show and he goes, oh, let me tell you that best joke in your newsletter this week, this this month, and he tells me the joke. And I go, that wasn't in my emailing. Where'd you get that? It's hysterical. He said it was in your mailing. I said, listen, Ed, if I'm smart enough to know every joke in the world, I think I'm smart enough to know the ones that I don't know. I know that I don't know that. So it became one of my very favorite jokes. And I always said I was going to tell jokes to Paul McCartney. And this is in my book. Oh, yeah. That was really funny. But go ahead. But th and that's the joke. That, that So you heard that joke. Yeah, yeah. Tell it, say it anyway. Say it anyway. It's very funny. So uh, my girlfriend said, wow, we're at a screening for the big short. And it's a real glitter eye. You know, so I, what, what the hell are we doing there? And Paul McCartney. What the hell were you doing there? 
we got invited. I'm on Pe Peggy Siegel's yeah, list yeah. to get invited to screen. It was the big short at MoMA, and it was great fun. And my friend Tom Bernard's the president of Sony Pictures Classics, and so I got different ways of getting into these things. And so Paul and uh, Paul McCartney and Nancy Chevelle come walking down the stairs. My girlfriend says, it's Paul McCartney. You can finally get to tell him a joke because everybody knows I always wanted to tell him jokes because he's a joke teller. And, I didn't know that about Paul McCartney. Oh, and I know I fought with Howard about this all the time. He said, you give me McCartney for five minutes, he's mine. We'll be friends forever. Not because he'll especially like me, but he'll know that I'm a source of his next good dick joke. And if, if you Google McCartney and goat, you'll get Paul McCartney sitting against the green screen telling a very, very filthy goat joke. That's all right. I'm going to do that. You know, McCartney and goat. Trust me. So he comes walking out and says, Jesus, go tell him a joke. I said, listen, the reason McCartney can live in New York, the reason he lives here is because people don't go up to him. They don't go up to Woody Allen and bother him on the street. That's that's why they can exist in New York. There's not, I said, there's not a person at this party that doesn't think they have a com completely valid reason for going up to Paul McCartney and telling him where they were in 1964. Everybody thinks they, they wants to talk to a Beatle. And I said, the fact they don't do it is why he can come here. So me and my big mouth, he comes walking around the perimeter of the room and his wife walks in front of me and Paul walks, I'm telling you, an inch in front of me. And the devil got me and I just stopped him with my hand. I said, can I tell you a joke? And he said, sure. I said, so a guy goes for a job interview and the interviewer says, what do you think is your biggest fault? And the guy says, I think my biggest fault is my honesty. And the interviewer says, I don't think honesty is a fault. And the guy says, I don't give a fuck what you think. <laughs> That's good. And he, and he roared. He roared. As he walked away, I said to my girlfriend, I am sure that he's playing that over in his head and he's going to tell that joke 10 times in the next two days because it's a great, great joke, you know? And I have so many jokes that it's, I'll be on stage telling a joke and I'll say to myself, this was on my first album in 1979. You know so what, so I mean? what do you mean you're, you're, you'd be on stage? So, so, so clearly then you're moving into, when you say on stage, I think stand-up. So how, how do you kind of translate the jokes into a stand-up act? Uh, I was, I was, as my band was about to break up, I was playing guitar and singing my songs in a in a club, like not not even a club, a bar where my band used to play. We were a two piece band and then a three piece band, and the band broke. We weren't making any money. I'm 31 years old, you know, and the band breaks up. Were you depressed? No more than ever, you know. I'm not, half the day I'm elated and the other half I'm depressed. I but I've been the same maniac forever. You know, people say, oh, you're off the Stern Show. Is it bothered? I'm like, listen, when I was poor in the 70s, I was happy after time and miserable after time. When I was a multimillionaire working for Howard, I was happy after time and miserable. It doesn't alter me. Yeah. You know, that's just, you learn that you got to ride the, the roller coaster because that's going to, I don't know about you, that's how, you know, whether I'm smoking pot or drinking, whatever it is, it's still up and down and up and down yeah. and not even for any valid reason. So I'm playing and, uh, it, everything that happens to me is because people are such pieces of dirt. We, my band used to play at a place called My Father's Place, which was a famous show club on Long Island. And it was a big deal when we got to play there because we were this little local band, a couple of guitars and a keyboard. <coughs> Excuse me. And we got to play. So the owner, Epi, Michael Epstein, who's still around, you'll probably hear this podcast. 
he was so cheap that my band was playing at my father's place and it was a big deal. And we went for sound check and he had booked the gong show auditions for ABC TV to make a few extra bucks before our show. So we're going to do the sound check. So these people are getting up and doing, you know, whatever they were doing, hitting the head with a spoon and two different guys got up to do comedy. And I said to myself, I'm as funny as these guys. And I went up to one of the guys and said, Hey, how'd you get to be a comedian? And he said, Jeezy, I had cards printed up. <laughs> and he asked me a card. I still have it. I'll send you an e It's Betty Boop Productions, Richie Minervini comic. So he said, stay around and watch my band. So he watched my band. He, said, he thought I was great because we're telling jokes and being idiots. And he said, you should come to Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn, which was a little variety showcase on Long Island. I went over there and Eddie Murphy was there and Bob Nelson, Rob Bartlett, people that have come to you know prominence. And Richie who's still one of my best friends to this day, opens for Kevin James and he, and you know, he's the one who owned the East side comedy club. All this stuff is in the book. It just, it, it one right, thing follows right. another, but there was no place on long Island to do comedy. And I said, why don't you guys come over to, you know, I had a gig. I mean, I got an audience and a microphone and a guitar. So the guys, you know, Murphy and Nelson and Bart, they would come over and get up and do five minutes at my gig. Because there was no place else to so, do it. So you basically created the environment where you could then put yourself on the stage and well, tell jokes. Oh, I already had that that, that environment. I, I played in a bar with a band. And then I told the owner, I want to have my own night. So I was playing in the same bars that he owned. I was I played every little joint. You know, it was, it was horrible. You know, I mean, the band was horrible. Then once the band broke up, there's nobody to commiserate with. So you're in tears on the way home. But I stuck with it and stuck with it. And then me and Richie Minervini, the guy who had yeah, the cards yeah. burned up, we started a show at a restaurant in Huntington and charged people to get in. And we paid the comedians. And the comedians came out from New York because they would actually get paid. And that that show at Cinnamon in Huntington grew into the East Side Comedy Club, which grew into the Long Island comedy scene. Before that happened, I recorded my first comedy album in that restaurant. I'm not a comedian, I'm a joke teller. But Jackie, what you did was you you basically, no one was gonna choose you and say, this is the next great comedian. But what the, what you did was you chose yourself. You basically said, okay, I'm gonna make my own album and distribute what, it. And you started selling it. Well, what I did, I, I made a judgment call. I knew these guys were, the Seinfelds and the Risers are doing five minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes, you know, clean material, they're headed for Carson. I told dirty jokes. I had no intention of telling clean jokes. I didn't want to write. There was a million comedians. There was nobody telling. I, I did try to do comedy comedy for a while, but I just love telling jokes. I love make, making people laugh. What's wow, the difference between wow. a joke and, and comedy? Well, you know, it's 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 not as defined a thing. To, you know, yeah. they, I, that's, not, that's not fair to say that because so many of the guys are so great and so funny, but I just like doing my brand of it. And I, and I realized... Instead of being in the city and going from the comic strip to the improv to catch a rising star, I'm going to do it on my own on Long Island and, you know, do it in little places and hire people. And I had shows everywhere on Long Island. And then we had the cinnamon. And then uh, my my dirty dial joke. I started a dirty dial joke just to get people to go to our gigs at the restaurant. I mean, there's so much information here. I know I'm overloading. No, but, no, it's okay. But... My 516922 wine that's been going for 38 years and is still going, that got me the, the, uh, the gig at Governor's Comedy Shop and I became the main guy there. And so by 1982, 
I had made three of these homemade comedy albums. I was doing stuff instead of being in the city and going from place to place. I'm out on Long Island and doing it on my own. I was the first guy that it was ever standing at the door selling an album as people left. Right, like this is before, like Eddie Murphy had a huge <laughs> album release, but it was like years later. No, no, no. But when he did it, he he had a real album and a real, you know, I, this wasn't a Robert Klein or a, a Bill Cosby, Why Is There Air? Those were huge records done by huge record companies, you know, and Cheech and Chong. This was a little homegrown album. By the time you're Bill Cosby with a CBS record, he didn't have to stand at the door and sell his get, sell his albums. I'm literally at the door selling my albums, and you know the comics are making fun of me until one day somebody else. You know what? We made fifty bucks a piece tonight, and Martley made an extra eighty because he sold his records. Maybe he's not stupid. So by 1982, I got three records, cassettes, and everything, and I'm sending them everywhere. Just you should hear the stories from people the people that I sent records to for 30 years ago. They they still revel in the stories and one of the sets i sent was to howard stern right and just just i mean so again you were sending to a lot of people with howard stern it stuck yeah it, yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a a dart aimed specifically to get on the radio it was one oh there's another person to send it to i was in washington dc and the club owner said this guy got fired you should send your stuff to him so i just sent my stuff to him when i got home with no one no idea that anything would just like send the stuff to Rodney. I I wasn't sitting there expecting the phone to ring. You know, I almost pooped my pellets when it, you know, hello, you know. So, but so uh, just on Rodney, just for a quick second. So I think a lot of people don't real, realize that uh, uh, Rodney was paying a lot of people to write his jokes. He had the the style and the, he, he had, he knew how to like deliver. He had the delivery ability. He knew how to work the crowd. He knew how to own the stage. He, you know, he, he had this whole persona, but he didn't write his, most of his jokes. But no, but he wrote plenty of them, but you know, so many people gave him jokes, you know, sold him jokes. He, he paid $50 a joke. It was a known thing. You know, like this guy sold him this one, this guy sold him that one. It was, it was so funny. Cause I got made fun of on the Stern show, but it was common knowledge in the comedy business. It's like, you know, it's it's commerce. You know, just like Howard Stern, he he didn't he he wasn't lacking in what he was doing before I got there. He just helped him. Like if Rodney's got a great act and you sell sell him one more great joke, it just makes him a little better. You know what I mean? It, it's it all adds up. You know, right? Because you sold him jokes that fit his persona, fit fit his style. The the I've got you know no respect sort of right, thing. And it's such a defined character that yeah. you know. And I have. A loosely full of jokes that I sent to him that he never used, and if you read through them, you'd, you'd laugh your ass off. But he knew specifically what would absolutely, you know, you know. I'll tell you, I don't think this is in the book. The uh, when we got to Las Vegas, he was going through his mail because people would send him jokes, you know. Yeah. And I said, boss, you know, let me let me read them. He goes, what? I said, you know, maybe you, you miss something, or maybe I'll. I'll see some daylight where you don't see it. Let me do this with it. Oh, okay. So he's reading, you know, stuff and tossing and saying, oh, what about this one? You know? So he hands me a piece of paper. And I said, what are you doing? This is spectacular. He said, what are you talking about? I said, this joke is unbelievable. This is the, this is the quintessential fat, ugly woman joke. <laughs> you think so? I said, yeah. And that night, He's <laughs> in Las Vegas. He's headlining Las Vegas. I'm in the back of the room. And he did the joke. And I'm telling you, you could hear a pin drop. And I think I think he went to his death thinking that I was teeing him up 
to fail. And meanwhile, I thought it was the fun, but it was just a little too much for a crowd to grasp. And it was total silence. And, oh, he's because the joke was uh, this girl was fat and ugly, fat and ugly. She had a hairdresser for each armpit. <laughs> I, that's funny. How could you not get that right away? That, he, he always said, you know, the audience is in Vegas. Everybody thinks Vegas is hip. They're square. You know, they're from Kansas. They're square. They don't get nothing, you know. I'm telling you, it just so, so, it laid there. So, he glared from the stage, and it was, it was so, so funny. So two things. One is, that is in the book, just to prove to you that I read the book. That story oh, okay. is in the book. I, I wasn't sure if yeah. I put it in there. Second off, what, what do you think... Why do you think he initially passed? Like, well, how, his sense of humor for what would make people laugh was so highly tuned, and that's a funny joke. What What do you think? Maybe his on initial reading, maybe he realized that's it's a little too much for the person to swallow because it's mm. it's a it's a double. A little, it's a little absurdist. Not to not to kiss your ass, but you're a little quicker than the average person. You know, you're you're a brilliant guy, so you're you know. And I'm sitting there telling you, here's a funny joke. You know. And and there's an absurdist uh, you know, quality to it. I wouldn't put it. it in there if it didn't really bomb. I'm not right, bragging. Right, right. <laughs> but but there's a, an absurdist quality to it, which maybe he he didn't like that absurdism too much. Right, right, right. It was for whatever reason it missed. Huh. You know? That's so funny. So okay, so then you hit you hit Howard Stern. Howard Stern calls you up, and then for three years it seemed you were going on <laughs> the Howard Stern show for free, right? It was so organic. I, you know, I went on there and uh, sat with, the, the first day I walked in, it was 1983. Me, 1983. I'd sent him my records at, in August of 82, but he got this, you know, NBC and got settled and blah, blah, blah. And then he called up and I, my girlfriend, who was going to be my wife eventually, called up <coughs> and said uh, that this jockey Howard Stern calls. He wants you to call him. I called him and said, hey, we listen to your records. You know every joke. You want to come in and sit in today. So I went to the city and it was Howard and Robin and Fred. And the very last day I was there in March, 2001, it was Howard and Robin and Fred and me. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we had a hell of a time. And you know, at the time, I don't know who, I didn't know from radio or from sitting around, you know, except sitting around shooting the breeze with people. And um, we, it, it, we must've just clicked. It was so much fun. You know, they laughed when I talked and I laughed when they talked and I'm a good laugher and I'm a good audience. And at the end of the day, he said, hey, you're a lot of fun. You want to come back next week? I was like, hell yeah. And plus he was announcing my dirty dial joke. So that was exploding. Because what's the economics of that or what was it back then? It's it's still the same. I've never made, it's cost me a fortune for 38 years. But it's done crazy, crazy. It's done more for me than I'll ever know. And, it's, and if not, it's, you know what, I'm a diseased person when it comes to jokes, and I just love it. And it was funny, because after the second week there, he called me up, and because uh, he said, yeah, I want you to come in each week. And uh, he called me up, and I said, I got some bad news. And I'm like, oh, well, it was fun while it lasted, you know. Easy come, easy go. And he says, I can't promote that 922 wine anymore. So why? He says, he says it's filthy, and NBC's getting complaints, so I can't promote that on the air. Do you still want to come in? I said, Hell, nine to do. Of course, you know. And then, slowly but surely, I would, you know, when we did Mrs. Flemstein, which was our version of Stump the Comedians, I'd give Fred some two line jokes, and I give him some rank outs to rank out with the listeners. And what's a rank out? You know, your mother is so fat, or you know, your sister's so ugly, or whatever. And um, over the course of the three years, I don't really know. I, I was just like passing him an idea, or 
or a line, but we really weren't situated so I could do that easily. And then we moved into a different section of the studio and I was like next to him, so it was easier. And I remember at some point I just grabbed a stack of, an actual stack of paper and got a Sharpie and said, I'm gonna do this right. And it was kind of hand him stuff. And when he got fired and got rehired at K-Rock, when I went in there my one day a week, there was like a, a little table, like a stone's throw, uh, not, I mean, an arm's length from him where I could actually write and pass him a note, which was, I don't know if it had been there already or it was by design or whatever. And I went in there just one day a week, same thing. And by this time I was actually giving him jokes. I, I, I swear I wish I could remember exactly the, the, the path. But all of a sudden he called up uh, when I was on the road in Virginia Beach and said, hey, we're going to mornings starting next week. I want you to come on two days a week and do your thing with the notes. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this. I hope you enjoy what I've been doing. I don't ask for a lot, but please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. To see the show notes, just head on over to jamesaltucher.com slash podcast. While you are there, you can join my free insiders list to get notified when I post a new podcast. Once again, thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. What's an example of like when you would pass him a note? Like you would something, some situation would be happening in the studio and you would think of something funny for him to do. It's this simple. Mm -hmm. You're there and Robin is here and you're having a conversation and I'm here too. So the three of us are in the room having, you know, having a great old time. It's a fun morning and you're talking about something. You say something, she says something, you say something, and I have something funny to, to add. I'm a funny guy. Instead of saying it, I write it down and put it in front of him. Maybe a word, maybe a sentence, maybe a line. What's in it? Can you give an example? You don't really give examples in the in the book that much. You know, it, it's... Nobody has ever asked me, you know, it's so funny. I have an attic full of every every line I ever gave him. You know, like, what would be, I, I can't even think of an example. I could, I could tell you something he he didn't say. Okay. Um, because when we started uh, working together, very early on, he said, don't edit. You know, let me edit. Whatever huh. you come up with, I want, I want to write that down. Why did he say that? Because he, he wanted whatever was fresh coming out of our brains and he would use it or not use it because we're sitting there and I'm sure this is in the book. We're writing a parody to I Got You, Babe for Cher's bagel maker boyfriend and his name was Rob something. And so we're going to do I, I Got Cher, Babe from this Brooklyn Bagel Boys point of view. And we got to the middle of the section of this song. I just smiled and shook my head and he goes, what? I said, no, 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 no. He says, what? And I'm brand new to, to this is we're on mornings. And uh, I said, it's too stupid. He said, nothing is too stupid. Tell me what you were thinking. In the middle section of the song where it goes, I got flowers in the spring and you two wear my ring. And when I'm sad, you're a clown. 
And when I laugh, you're always round. And, and the line I gave him was this bagel maker saying, I see London, I see France, I saw Cher in her underpants, which is just the most childhood rhyme. And we roared, and it was the funniest line in the song. And that was that was the lesson to don't, nothing is too stupid. Because if you listen to that show, there could be something so hip and so smart and so cutting. And the next thing could be a second grade joke, which is, that was the beauty of the show. That was the contrast. You never knew. And- Because he was obviously incredibly smart. He is incredibly smart. He is so brilliant. Nobody could do what I did if he wasn't there. It wasn't like I could just do that for, you know, if he had to be as bright as he was, that I could put something in front of him that he could work it into what he's talking about, or he could switch it around and make it about Fred or switch it around and make it about me. Or sometimes he'd go past it. And then if he liked the line enough, he would actually, cause we were working, you know, we're in real time. So all of a sudden, you know, by the time I write it down, we're past, he would circle around and come back so he could hit it. It was, it was phenomenal. And that's the story about Bruce Jenner and Dom DeLuise in the book. That was brilliant because that also sort of explains in a weird backhanded way and you don't address this, this it, but it sort of explains why Bruce Jenner's show when he's Caitlyn Jenner got canceled <laughs> because you sort of see it, the seeds of that right there in your story about Bruce Jenner. Right, it was and so funny when all of a sudden he uh, has his sex change. He's back in the news. I was like, oh, that makes my story more relevant now. You know, <laughs> Even the fact that he got canceled. The man, the man has a sex change. He's a Kardashian and still can't get the show. If you on can't air. make that interesting, <laughs> right? <laughs> but but you see the evidence of that in your story, right there, right in the so, story. You know, he just you know. The, the... So so Howard Stern, you you get on the show and you kind of see there's there's a couple things that are, that are very interesting. One is the fact that you sent out all over the place. A lot of people don't do that because they're very they they have a scarcity complex. Like oh, I can't share this everywhere or whatever. See the difference with me is these jokes have been around forever. I'm not about writing these and these are mine. I'm about, I gathered these, I'm sharing them. You know, I got a joke book coming out right behind this book and, and Penn Jillette wrote the forward and he said, Jackie, you know, is not a comedian. He's a joke teller and he's amassed these jokes and he makes them the way they should be and told the way they should be. And he just said, thank you for all those people that like jokes, you know? So, so then then you you send out, you, you create an opportunity for yourself and then you're not, uh, I think this is a very important lesson. You're not transactional. You're not saying to, for, for three years, you didn't say to Howard, oh, I'm only coming back next Tuesday if you promote this or if you give me money. You kind of saw that there was an opportunity there. You didn't know what it was, but you knew that this is good for you. I knew it was 50,000 watts. Uh, at some point when we went to K-Rock, my, my wife said, you know, he really should at least be paying your parking. So she asked him to pay the parking. Now, that was actually going to be a scene in the movie, but never made it to the movie because it was supposed to give me 25 bucks a week. And that's, you know, of course, he'd only have a 20 on him or have no money on him or I'd forget. So it was, it was like a running joke. But I knew right away, you know, after the first couple of weeks, he said, why don't you bring other comedians in to, to hang out on the air with us and, you know, make stump the comedians or for whatever reason. I asked so many comics. Do you want to come on the Howard Stern show with me on a Tuesday? And they'd say, what's it pay? Right. And I'd say, what do you mean, what's it pay? There's no radio show having comedians. This is a 50,000-watt flagship WNBC. The whole world is listening to this show, <clears throat> which they weren't yet. But, the, I mean, more people are going to hear you in two minutes than they're going to hear you 
for the next five years at the comic strip. But 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 Jackie, don't you realize that that is that that is the key to success is you kind of is like seeing that and yes, is seeing that and kind of investing some sort of intellectual capital rather than saying right away, okay, every moment has to be a transaction. Like you invested time and energy into the situation, and then eventually the re the world rewards you back. But I had no idea. It wasn't like in my mind, hey, maybe someday this will go to mornings and someday I'll be right around, you know. There was nothing, I, I was going there. But you were enjoying it and you were having fun. I, I was loving it. I was reaping the rewards because I would say, I'm, I'm working tonight at Rascals and I go down and work Rascals and they pay me good for the promotion. And it was helping my governor's shows. And it, it, it just, it was so worth it. For free, it was so worth it. And what did you recognize in Howard that was different from other people? Like Howard obviously is, you know, at his peak was called the king of all media and he's still maybe the, Which the best coined. guy in radio. Oh, I didn't know you had, you had coined but, that. But <laughs> there was nothing about Howard because I didn't know anything to compare. When I walked in there, I knew how great they were at what they were doing. Now, I don't know whether I knew how great they were because I had walked into Rockefeller Center and they were there or it was it was it was the big time and it felt like the big time and they felt that good but i also felt like i belonged like when i was with rodney dangerfield or hanging at the friars club with buddy hack or something i never felt like it was like i had snuck in i always felt like i you know this is it sounds pompous but it's not pompous it's like it's my, it's your people you know, I could sit there and be funny with anybody. So, so, so there was some inner compass, though, inside of them that said, okay, uh, this is a good thing for me somehow, which I can't explain, and hanging it, out with this person. And it isn't just, I don't know from other shows, but this is not just another show. This is something, you so, know. So, so like what, what, I'm trying to figure out kind of beginning, middle, and end, what made Howard Howard? Like why was he then moved to morning and then syndicated? You could almost look at him and mm -hmm. see his, his mind saying, I shouldn't say that, so I'm going to say that. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I, but he I, I'm not at, that analytical, but he just, you know, he was ballsy, man, you know, because he, it's so hard to remember back, but saying penis on the radio was so, so groundbreaking and crazy. And now, like, you know, just, just saying you're a dick, that, that didn't happen. You know, when, when, when Sean Penn said that in, in the movie and said, you're a dick, and then we, we constantly playing that card, you're a dick. <clears throat> that was, it, it was so ground, it's so hard to look back and realize, you know, it's like Mae West was so filthy. And if you look back at 1948, what she did, you know, your grandmother gets up to, to excuse herself to go to the bathroom and says filthiest stuff. Mm. You know what I mean? It's just times change, but it, it was exciting and and you, you could feel it was groundbreaking. You just really could, you know? And and he's also, I mean, obviously he's very funny, but I, I, I'm actually sort of a more post 2000 Howard Stern listener because I really, I, I, in order to learn podcasting, I wanted to study how Howard Stern interviewed people. And he interviews people in this very fascinating way. He'll ask you like an extremely direct question. You might say no, like I, or you might kind of not answer it, but then he starts poking and prodding from every side, you know, and he's joking around, he's making you laugh. And then eventually you're just Before like, you know it, you answered it. You're in the bathtub <laughs> and you're answering his questions and everybody's laughing and you don't even realize what you're doing. It's what I see in his guests. So so there was some skill there in interviewing. Oh, you know, Milton Burrow was on the show and I'll never forget uh, after about what the, the segment, uh, he said, all right, we're going to commercial and we all 
I always would leave to go to the bathroom and Milton Burl walked out with whoever was handling him and they walk in front of me and Milton Pearl shaking his head and he said to his handler, and this is this we're on K-Rock, we're, we're on terrestrial radio. And he said, he talked about my dick for 45 minutes, you know, and, and on terrestrial radio, you know, and got away with it. I mean, uh, it was, he had Robert Klein fighting with his wife on, on the telephone. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, so sort of like whatever came to his mind, he, he would be fearless. He would stay within the gray area of the boundary. But then if he didn't get what he wanted, he somehow always was able to circle back and, and get people. He had likability too. So he was able to kind of um, no, yeah, he's, get the guests to like him, even if he was asking these harsh questions. It, it was, you know. How, how would he do that? Like what's, what, define his likability. It, it, it was a very popular show. So people knew it was worthwhile going 15 rounds with the champ. And I think it became like a badge of honor to come on there. But uh, yeah, he, people warmed to him. They just do. You know, they just would. Why? Like, what would he do? Because he's asking these deeply personal questions that might even be offensive. Well, how would he back well, off? Well, I just know when I was there, we would laugh. And it, was, and it, was a, it wasn't a Tom Snyder situation. It was right. a good time situation. And even when it was a little serious, we're still... Having fun. So you, you know? created a party, party atmosphere. So the guest wants to join the party. He it, wants to, they want to join the party. Of, but I, I can't say that because I'm long gone. And I don't know how they, now I don't know whether it's a vacuum there or whether they're still laughing or and going back crazy. Then, oh yeah, it was, it was definitely a party atmosphere, you know. And, was, and it, was, it, was, it was fun for whoever came on, it was fun. So you're doing it three years, no pay. I don't even, I don't know. It wasn't mentioned in the book. It seems like you didn't even think to mention pay until like 1986. And then what happens? Well, what happened was um, he called me on the road and said, we're going uh, to morning starting next week. I need a price for two days a week. Hmm. So, so I gave him a price for two days a week. And he was funnier the mornings that I was there. So he fought with management to get me, you know, fought with management, you know, whatever's going behind the door, you don't know whether it's Howard or Mel or Tom or his agent, you know, whatever the powers that be, I went from two days a week to three to four to five because it was glaringly different. I mean, he's a very, very funny guy, very funny. But when he had me there, he was extra funny. And not only when I was there, I was also a conduit so Fred could write notes and pass them to me. So not only did Howard have three senses of humor, he had three distinctly different senses of you. I'm like a punchline, you know, slap you in the face, you know, big joke guy. And Fred was like from Pluto and you never knew where he was coming from. And Howard had a big, broad sense of humor. So you had three senses of humor coming out of one guy and it was, it was magnificent. And, and it wasn't like you felt like, <clears throat> oh, this is funny. I need to, I need to say it to prove to everybody I'm funny. You, you, you naturally fit into this thing where, okay, let Howard, the star of the show, say the funny thing. I, I had no, I never had a problem. Like when I left the show, it was just about money. It wasn't like I want to be a bigger star or I want somebody to hang my name on the car. You know, it was like, I'm passing notes and he's getting, you know, if you write a movie, or if you write for a movie, if you're lucky in two years, it's going to get made and eventually come out. And maybe the people going to theater, maybe they'll laugh at your, your movie. If you're a comedian, you might come up with a joke for that night for your act and you write it and go up and try it that night. I'm writing stuff. And 10 seconds later, 12 million people are driving off the road laughing. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. It just doesn't, you know? And, and, and I knew that, you know, like, 
People say, yeah, I was driving along and, yeah, and, and you said, you know, whatever line and you look around all the, all the people on the expressway, their heads are bobbing because they're laughing. And that's, you know, I'd never had any problem that it wasn't me saying it. You know, it was, it was, it was exciting as hell. You know, it just was. And, and so, so, so you start getting up to five days a week or you got to five days a week and your head writer, was that a title they gave you or? <clears throat> no, what happened was I was writing jokes, um, for all those years and we went to channel nine and we got a job uh, to do a uh, TV show at channel nine. So basically they were filming the show being done. No, 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 no. This is a, this is a channel nine television show. We're going mm -hmm. to Secaucus and we're writing scripts and gigs and you know, he's going to interview people. I mean, this is totally separate. Mm -hmm. This is not the E show and it's not to say this is the channel nine show, legendary channel nine show. And they came to me and said, Hey, uh, okay, uh, this is not a guild show. I don't know enough about the union. This is not a writer's guild show. So we can't say you're writers. We, we're going to say you're uh, producers or, or segment producers. And I said, I'm not a segment producer. I'm a writer. Because I was doing the same thing, you know, on the fly. I said, and I don't know, <coughs> it sounds ballsy. I said, I said, I'm not just a writer. I'm the head writer. Because I'm the last one that decides what's going in front of Howard before he reads it. And they said, well, <clears throat> Fred's been here longer than you. But, you know, I said, well, Fred isn't the last one to hand Howard the line. I'm the one making those calls. And they said, well, Fred can't because he's too busy doing the sound. I said, well, I don't want to be called the sound guy. That's Fred. I'm not looking to do his job. I do my job and I'm the head writer. And I stuck to it and I went to the wall and for years they broke my balls about it. Like, oh, I'm the head writer, but I was. I'm the last guy to decide what's going in front of him. That's the head writer. So they broke my chops about it, but it really was what I was, you know? So, you know, everything comes, you know, no matter what I fought for or wanted, I always got my balls broke about it, but it didn't matter because I'd go to the wall because I wasn't wrong. You know, if, the, if there was an error in my judgment or error in my logic, you know, I'm a smart guy. I'd say, all right, I understand. You know? How would you decide what to give to him and what to say for yourself during no, the show? No, never, never save anything for myself. Mm. You know, you mean for my act? Or yeah. for me? No, no, no. There, there was like a few lines along the way that that he he didn't use. I said, you know what? I bet I could use that and and save it for myself. In fact, one of my favorite lines of all time that you know said uh, <laughs> he was. I forget what he was, but I wound up using it about my wife. I I said I, I have an Italian wife. And going down on her is like eating sushi off the floor of a barbershop, <laughs> which is pretty horrible. And he passed on. I said, I'm going to take that home. So, why, why do you think he passed on that? A guy, I don't know. Maybe it didn't fit. I have I have no idea. I just know that I, I put an X on it in a circle and just put it to the side, you know. So, so again, it was during this time. I mean, you saw this kind of historical time in radio, which is that this guy went from small show to being the biggest thing in all of radio. It was so gradual, you know, it's like the old story of putting a frog on a frying pan and turning on the heat gradually, you know, like- It's like 18 years. It, it was, right, like the, when we went to mornings, everybody said it wouldn't work because radio was supposed to be local. So how's it gonna work in Philadelphia and Washington, you know, Philadelphia especially so, you know, they're so proud, they're proud people, right. you know, we don't need your help, we got our own radio shows, you right. know. And so, of course, it worked big time in Los Angeles, I mean, in, in Philadelphia and Washington. And 
we would get interviewed. You know, we were starting to become hot stuff. And not just Howard and Robin, but they taught, you know, and I'd get interviewed. And I, it, this was so distinct. Like after we went to Philadelphia and Washington, an interviewer would say, hey, Jackie, you know, the show's great. Everybody loves the show. But how long can it last? Like, I don't know. We're just doing what we can. And like two years later, three years later, wow, you know, you guys are great. Now you're on in 12 cities, but, but how long can it last? I swear there must have been five or seven times, like all of a sudden we're on Channel 9 and we got our own TV show in addition to the radio show. Wow, this is unbelievable. Yeah, but how long can it last? And then he writes a few books and how long can it last? And then he makes a movie. But well, you guys are great. How long can it last? And it's still going. And so so, so I, I know for you during this time, it was very gradual and it was, a, 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 it was fun every day. It was a party every day and people enjoyed it. But just being a little bit analytical, what do you think it was? He... He beat out essentially 20,000 other radio shows during this well, time. It, it, it was just eye-opening. The show was great. What made him different? It, it, the show was so funny and so cutting edge. You know, most radio shows were so bad and the jockeys, they, they just aren't funny guys and yeah. they never were. You know, it was so funny because when, when comedy started and we started traveling around when, in 1979 or 80 when... The, when I guess in the early 80s when the comedy clubs started popping up everywhere around the country. And they used to bring three guys from New York, you know, a three-man show or a two-man show, a three-man show, two-man show. And then all of a sudden people realized, hey, we can get the local radio show. We'll get the disc jockey to promote the club and we'll let him come in and host the show. So meanwhile, uh, these disc jockeys, are we on terrestrial or is it all right to say naughty words here? Yeah. So, so you get a disc jockey. Every disc jockey in the world is the same. Every person they come in contact with is someone they can help. I'm a car dealer. I meet you. I'm so nice to you and you're the funniest guy in the world because you're going to say Jackie's cars are the best. You know what I mean? So everybody's kissing ass and you're the funniest guy in the world. And meanwhile, they're, they're hem, hemmed in also by the radio station. So they say, do you want to come host the comedy shows? These guys, these DJs, not only think they're hysterical, but they can't wait to get on stage and say, fuck. And all of a sudden they get to the club and they'll get up on stage and say, hey, how the fuck are you? And if you're not funny, you find out really quick. <laughs> And I would just watch these people because I'd be a lot of times I'd be with the first guys at the club, first guy at the club, and the the rude awakening, and they became the greatest comedy fans because they'd say, "Whoa, it is not easy. You can't just go up there and say fuck you, you know." You, and they just weren't funny guys, but they thought they were funny. Meanwhile, Howard was a disc jockey that really was funny. So just define. I know this is a, a like the most naive question, but. Define how he was funnier than the rest. So what what made him funny? He would just talk about stuff and be outrageous and talk about stuff that other people didn't talk about. And he pushed the envelope as far as, you know, uh, farts and poop and penis. And, and, I, I, and I was making him funny. You know, people said that heard him in Washington and heard him in, D, in, in New York said when he's in Washington, he was outrageous and funny. And when he got to New York, he was funny and outrageous. Which is very subtle, but you know he, he led with the funny, and and it there were punchlines, and I, I you know I can't really put my finger on it, but it was it was just it was it was outrage, but it was also funny, and he and he had opinions, 
It, it, not like other disc jockeys. Other disc jockeys, you know, here's the time, here's the weather, and here's the song. You know, they just didn't care to do that. Now everybody does it. So, you know, it's hard to think, it's hard to remember back. Howard has always said, when he was a kid riding along with his father, he'd hear, hear these idiots on the radio. He said, why don't, why don't they talk like a normal person? Why don't they say anything? Hey, how you doing? Here's a song. Yeah. What time is it? Ooh, you know. He said, why don't they talk like, no, he's when I grew up on a talk like a normal human being and be the biggest radio star. And he did and he is. So, 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 so he had this idea to talk like a normal person, which was different. Say your opinions, which most people don't do. Um, and then, Stand by him, take outrageous stances. So like, what's an example of an outrageous stance? The whole world loved Johnny Carson. He hated Johnny Carson. Mm. He didn't hate Johnny Carson, just made people crazy, mm. you know? And then, and then he told people he had a tiny, tiny dick because he knew that would make people comfortable. Hmm. Right. So, so that's part of the self-deprecating is yeah, equals yeah, likability. You know, yeah. Very, you know, calculated and funny as hell, you know? Yeah. So, and then, and then lead with the funny as opposed to lead with the outrage. What do you mean by that? Uh, you know, it's, it's a subtle thing, but it, you know, you could be outrageous and crazy and insulting, but if, if you prick the b balloon, and make it funny, you know, like like with bullies on the on the on the in the schoolyard. You know, if you're funny, you get away with a lot more than, you know, it. it, it you know what? I if it was easily defined, he wouldn't be that big because he could have been duplicated. I guess you know? I guess that's sort of the difference, though. It's well, elusive. You know, well, I I don't mean to be. To you know, evasive at all. I, if I had an answer, I would give it to you. No, it's sort of like we're, we're figuring it out in, in real time here. It makes me think of like John Stewart versus a Bill O'Reilly. So Bill O'Reilly might have had outrageous opinions. Um, John Stewart led with the funny, but then was able to get his outrageous opinions out there. So, and then he, he was the funnier show and actually then became the more relevant show. And, you know, that that's a hard thing to, to discuss because I agree with John Stewart. Bill O'Reilly's a piece of dirt. So... It's hard to compare, but you know, there's there's not a funny bone in Bill O'Reilly. Right, but, but John Stewart was funny, so, you t so at the very least, you could tune in for that. Right, so, and he was incisive and wonderful at the same time, and it was you know it was huge. So so okay, so so fast forward, uh, it's two thousand one. Um, you're you're up for negotiations. You had a set number in in mind. Why didn't they just give it to you? You've been with the show for eighteen years. Hey, you got a phone? He has to make a call. <laughs> That's a very good question. Yeah. I, That's I, the unanswered question. I never understand. It, it was, I tell people, you know, if you're a comic and somebody says you want to work in, in Alaska, you don't say no. You say $60,000. And they don't give it to you, of course, and you don't get the gig. If they say yes, well, fuck, I'll go to Alaska. Yeah. You know what I mean? I didn't price myself out of the ball game by any means. I thought it was a a fair figure and I was really in a in a bad way and I said I'm a, not to be a hypocrite but if I can if I can get the 60 grand I'll go to Alaska. If I can get what I'm asking for or close to it, you know, I'll I'll stay. And and I'm so full of crap because after a couple of months I said I'll, I'll take the old offer if it's still there because you know, it was it was such a surreal thing to sit there and laugh for five hours a day, five days a week. You know, and you didn't realize you don't miss the fame or the money. You, you miss the the camaraderie, and and we weren't. It was not like we were walking down the street arm in arm. We were battling with each other. But it was an amazing, amazing time, and it's not an easily recreatable thing. And we had amazing chemistry. 
But but I didn't ask for that crazy amount. I thought, you know, they, it, I had been there for a long time and I had a lot to do. You know, now he he certainly doesn't need me and may, probably didn't need me the day I left. But I had a lot to do with helping him get to where he was. And I was like, Shit. And it wasn't a big ask. I mean, they were even saying in your final year of that five-year contract negotiation, you'd be getting kind of in the range of what you were asking for. Yeah, so I don't know. It was a it was a crazy time. Uh, I tried to stand by my guns, and then I wavered, and like, and that's just how it wound up. Now, I don't think money had anything to do with it. I think I don't know whether me leaving was a good idea for them. I I will never know. The only person knows the answer to why I'm not still there is Howard. He's the only one that knows, and nobody knows. And you know, whether it had to do with his new girlfriend, whether it had to do with he had had enough of you know, depending on me or whether he thought he didn't need me. Who knows? You know, who knows? And like, so two weeks pass, three weeks pass, a month passes. What What were you feeling at that point? You're, you're, I don't know if you were listening or not, or you're just hanging no, out. No, I never listened, but I, I, I had no idea if they were going to call or not. I really had no idea. You know, what had happened was they had stopped, um, they had stopped negotiating. And that's when, um, we, we went in and had the meeting and I said, all right, you know, Jackie's not going to come in Monday, which is how we always did it. And then they always feign like I had stood him up, which was, that was pretty hurtful. They'd tell 12 million people, oh, Jackie stood us up. There's still people pissed off at me. How could you leave Howard and Robert high and dry? I never did that. I would never do that. I'm a professional guy. I'm a nice guy. I wouldn't just not show up for work. That's, you know. But then after a couple months, my lawyer called and said, listen, Jack, you'll take the deal. It's still on the table. And I called Howard and said, listen, Larry called Tom to tell him if the deal's still on the table, we'll take it. And Howard said, oh, that's good to know. Thanks. We'll let you know. Nothing. Nothing. They, they didn't call back and say, no, you didn't get the gig or I, you're not getting the gig. Or I don't know if this would have been appropriate, but let me just ask you, like, if you, before the negotiations were over that first time around, if you had called Howard and said, hey, Howard, just give me advice how I should do this. Would that have been appropriate or how would you have No, because him? he had always said that he never wanted to be a part of the negotiation. But that's ridiculous because he's the entire negotiation. Right, he's the show. He's, he, he's the show and he's, you know, it, it's his baby. What he wants, he gets. If he wanted a golden chair to sit in, he'd get a golden chair. You know, they, you know, no, Howard, we're not going to pay your writer that much money. You can't have him. That, that's... You know, it's like, you know, the story of Frank Sinatra saving Shecky Green's life? No. He said, all right, boys, stop beating him up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he, he's in total, he was in total control. You know, he, he could have waved his finger, especially after I said I think the deal was on the table already. Okay, so let's just say even like a year later, when, when, was the, when did you realize, ugh, this great experience I had for 18 no, years? No, no, I knew, I knew it was done. Like, after... After I told him that I would take the deal if it's still on the table, when they didn't call back after a day or two, I knew that ship had sailed. And I, you know what? And it was a long, it was like a couple months before I made that call. So I think in my I, my heart, I probably knew I had let the the ship sail too long, far anyway. You know. I mean, did you get depressed? No, you know, I was totally shored up. You know, if if you're not ready to hear, if you're not ready to walk away, you, you can't negotiate. Right. You know, and I was in I was in 
the weirdest situation. I knew I couldn't quit drinking. I knew I couldn't get divorced. And I knew I couldn't take a nap. And I would just, there was no way to break out of this thing I was in, which sounds so childish, but it was no. very real at the time. You know- Why did you think you couldn't do those uh, things? You know, I didn't want to, divorcing my wife would have been so impossible because there was, there was no time. You know, working the show and then working gigs. And I, and I certainly wasn't going to move out into a bachelor pad with a hot plate, be a multimillionaire, you know, cooking eggs on a hot plate. And um, and I didn't want the, a divorce raked over in front of 12 million people. And, um, <clears throat> and I knew there was no way I was going to work my ass off that much and then not have a drink. You know, it, it, I couldn't do that math in my head, as silly as it sounds now. I tell everybody the same thing. I'm I'm 69, okay. When I wake up in the morning, all I can think, when can I take a nap? When can I climb back in bed and lie down? All I want to do is take a nap. And if I was able to take a nap in 2001, I'd still be on the show. But I couldn't make myself do it. And I know as childish as that sounds, you know the old definition of an, of an idiot. is somebody that does the same thing 99 times and says, it's gonna be different this time. I knew I wasn't ever gonna take a nap, but now I'm 69. If you told me, Jackie, we're gonna give you hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but you have to take a nap every day, I'd suck your dick. I'd be like, well, are you kidding? But that was then and this is now, you know. So do you think do you think you um, part of what you wanted to ask for was because if you had this extra money, then you could afford the divorce, you could get- No, get no, it wasn't affording the divorce. It, I, I wanted the money because you couldn't just walk away from that show. And I and it, I can't tell you the rationale in my head was like, yeah, you know, if, if I get what I'm asking for, maybe I'll feel better about myself. You know, I I really have never been able to go go deep enough to, to answer that. It just wasn't the kind of show you walked away from. You're like, all right, I'm gonna, if I can average a million dollars for the next five years, I'm gonna stay here and then somehow make this work. And it was as easy as coming home and taking a nap. And I'm not even making that up. But I'm a stubborn piece of shit, okay? And I was not gonna, as great as that show is, and as much as I love being part of it, I, I refused to let that be my life. Like go to the show, come home, and go to bed at eight o'clock at night or go home. When I came home, I didn't want to take a nap. You know, I want to live my life. I didn't do anything. You know what I mean? We, we watched Law and Order. Instead of going to sleep, we'd watch Law and Order, watch, you know, watch LA Law. Like, it's idiocy. But that was the idiocy I was caught up in. And that's and that's the truth. And so once you were out of it, was there any point in the years later you felt, oh, this is good now, this is relief? Well, you know, the same as the 70s. Yeah. I'm miserable half the time and elated yeah. half the time. And I'm not even, I'm not making that up. That's a true story. I realize- What's your average day like now, pre-book, pre pre-working on this book? Well, it, it's it's so eclectic. I don't know. I get up, I go out and work on the computer and, and maybe, you know, put some gigs on or make some calls or do some interviews or visit with some friends or go to lunch or, or go, you know, it's, there is no typical day. Like in the summer, every day I get up and and swim and swim. You did the three. serious show for a while. I right? did the serious show for eight years, mm -hmm. one day a week, an hour a week, and now it was great, great fun. I still love that, but they just yanked the plug on that. Never any explanation. 
You know, it's 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 a weird regime. Howard Stern Show is a weird regime. It is and always has been. And, you know, as far as the drinking, I knew I had to quit in the back of my mind. But I when I left the show, it wasn't, I, if I leave the show and I don't get my contract, then I can quit drinking. That wasn't part of the plan necessarily. I knew in the back of my head for a long time, Jack, at some point you got to stop at some point. And all of a sudden I'm off the show. And all of a sudden, is it five o'clock yet? I said, I cannot, I realize you, I cannot spend my life waiting for it to be five o'clock every night. So the only solution is to have it never be five o'clock. And I just walked away and no AA or anything. And people say, well, you didn't have a problem. And I'm like, okay. You know, I'm not bragging about, you know, I just knew it was time to stop. And I just stopped drinking. And uh, I don't know if I recommend it or don't recommend it, but more and more people, it's just like people that used to be everybody's smoking and now nobody's smoking. Like it, it used to be like, oh God, I'm at the party and I, and I don't drink. And you know, meanwhile, he doesn't drink, he doesn't drink, she doesn't drink. You know, so many old rock and rollers and, and you know, you just stop, you know, a little self-preservation or whatever. You know, alcohol, it's, it's all so funny. Um, I got a, a friend whose mother has been an alcohol counselor. She's, she's 85. 60 years of alcohol counseling. And I got to be friends with, with her and her husband. So I actually would go, you ever have a friend where you visit their parents without them, you know, cause you like them. And- uh, No, actually. <laughs> so I go down to visit uh, Liz and Herman and he's 95, she's 85. And I just, they're just brilliant and so wonderful. And guy's a multi-billionaire. And I walk in, he's got a little piece of paper with pencil scribblings, the jokes that he wants to try on me. You know what I mean? One of those yeah. things. And because uh, jokes go right across the thing, just like with McCartney, it's just like a Jets fan or or a hockey fan. It just goes, it cuts through, right? So she's an alcohol counselor for six years, and she goes, you know, we I never talked to you about your drinking. And she says, how bad was your problem? And I said, you know, people argue with me because I just walked away without AA or anything like that. People, are like, oh, you didn't have a problem. And I said to her, you know, it's funny. Because how, how do you judge? I said, uh, I never got up in the morning ever and needed a drink, you know, needed a shot. And I never sat with my wife and watched television at night and had a few beers or had a drink. And, uh, you know, I never sat and drank beer and watched the ball game. And I look and she's smiling. I said, what's so funny? She said, anybody that uses the word never when they're describing their drinking is an alcoholic. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And I had 60 years of experience. I wasn't going to argue with it. I guess because there's no reason and you're drinking. It's like, it, it's just very interesting. But uh, so I don't, I don't know what the story was, but I, I, it was very smart to walk away. But I tell people the same thing. I didn't win a battle, you know, because I just stopped. You know, the, I make the same analogy all the time is I like tuna fish. Okay, I love a tuna fish sandwich. I mean, I could eat a thousand tuna fish sandwiches. If I have one for lunch today, I'll love it. It'll be so great. And I might have one tomorrow, but I might not have another tuna fish sandwich for a month. But when I have it a month from now, I'll love it. But there's no investment in it. To me, the person who wins is the person who have a glass of wine with dinner and not have to have a glass of wine with dinner tomorrow night or not go, right. you know, somebody who can go out and get drunk as hell tonight and then 
maybe not get drunk for a month, you know, like take it or leave it. And I, I, I just, I would love to think that now I could just have a glass of wine with dinner, but I don't want to risk it. Right. You know what I mean? And, and it sounds like, it sounds childish, like taking away somebody's toy, but whatever it takes, you know. Well, um, I want to, I want to just quickly, since the book is called Bow to Stern, I want to just ask like, I want to ask advice. So I'm doing this podcast three years. What 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 should someone like me? What can I learn from Howard Stern that I could that you've learned that you that you studied from him that you've seen him do? What can I do better? You haven't obviously seen all my podcasts or anything, but what what would you suggest to anybody? Just don't feel any barriers. Hmm. You know, if there's something you want to say or do, just do it. Don't 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 ask me. You know, they say when you're a kid. You'd be there all day asking for permission. You just do something and then and then roll with the punishment. Hmm. You know what I mean? Just do do whatever you think. You know, follow your heart. But you see so many comedians now, and and and, and you know, I'm not even talking about all these recent cases of harassment because that's obviously a di bad stuff, that, different right, category. Right. But like you see all these comedians say stuff, and everybody says, no, 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 you can't say that, even though. Comedy should be the one place you could say anything. Uh, That's the know, safe place. I'm, I'm the wrong guy to talk to about that. As far as that, I'm talking about places where you should go, you know, in your heart and your mind. I'm not talking about politically correct stuff. I've been telling the same stupid jokes and, you know, uh, a black joke here and a Jewish joke there and a Catholic joke there and, and a Polish joke. And in fact, I've always done the same garbage. And anybody that sees me on stage, if they don't know that I am as harmless and non-hateful as anybody could ever be. There'll always be somebody that says that's not funny, but there's always going to be somebody that says that's not funny about the most gentle joke in the world because yeah. that's just how it is. It's it's like I can say, oh, fuck you. Or I can say, fuck you. It's not the same thing. Right. It's, you know, it's just words. It's, it's all attitude and feeling. I, I think what you said about Howard saying, you know, don't edit. Like, I think he didn't edit himself in a good way. Like he would basically, this is on my mind. He trusted, he had faith in his intelligence and his ability to understand the situation. So he wouldn't edit himself. Right, and he knew enough to run up to the line, but not stomp over it and wind up thrown off the air. Just maybe just enough to, it caused a little buzz. How do you think you learned that? I think, I think that's, I think it's gut. I think, I think with him, it was innate. You know, I think he just knew. So wait, I, I know you have your, your joke line. Um, it's, uh, it's 516-922-9463, right? Okay, I'm gonna, you mind if I call right now? Uh, I, I hope it works. <laughs> okay, let's see how it works too. Uh, hold on, let's see. Rick Dees used to give that out to his listeners and tell them it was Tom Selleck's home phone number. <laughs> so 516-922-9463. Um, Let's see. I'm gonna I'm gonna see what joke you got there. Do you update it every day? How often? Do you no, update? just when I have a new gig. You know, in a, a week, two weeks. All right, it's ringing. Oh wait, it's the Paul McCartney joke. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. All right, it's the Paul McCartney joke. Good. That's a good one. Funny one. I so I'm doing I'm doing stand up tonight. I think I'm gonna try to use this joke. Now I, how, see. I didn't. I how do I, I convert I that into? I wasn't being rude. I didn't Google you because I wanted to come in here. Clink. That's clean, fine. That's you know? fine. Yeah. So you you said you're part of I don't know yeah 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 I, I own part of Stand Up New York is on 78th and Broadway and I do stand up there three now, to six times a week. Now is that the place week. with the right next door to the recording studio upstairs? Yeah yeah. 
Oh, yeah, those guys. I went in and talked to those guys. I was talking to them about maybe doing a podcast from up there. Oh, so. yeah. Come on come on down. Or, Is that still there? Yeah, yeah. And when do you want to do stand-up there or you want to t- well, I don't tell know. your they, jokes? They, they just opened a club right near you guys, right? Yeah, but that club's, I mean, I don't want to put any club down. You know, there's two clubs on, on the Upper West Side now. Yeah, it, <laughs> so, you know, right. It's good right. to have a scene anyway. You know, right. it's good. I think it's good for the Upper West Side scene to have two clubs. So then comedians can come up there instead of always downtown and they have a place right. to go. And they've got two different places yeah. to go. Have you always done stand-up? I don't know anything about I have, you. I haven't always done I should done turn it. around and interview you. You know, I haven't always done it. Where are you from? Uh, I'm from New Jersey and then New York. Did you come up as a musician or as a... No, I've been a writer for a long time. And uh, and then I also did some investing because I needed to make some money. Writing wasn't doing it. And when did you get horny to do comedy? Uh, I would say about two years ago and then about a year ago. What 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 fueled that? You told a joke and you were with some friends. Okay, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you really what fueled it. I've never said it to anybody. I was at a party and I was talking to a girl that I liked and I... You know Henny Youngman's definition of a comedian? No. That's a guy who had a relative tell him that they were funny at a family reunion. Uh, uh, <laughs> That's so, what you're going to say. That, no, it's not quite what I'm going to say. But I was talking to a girl that I liked and she was drinking a glass of wine and I told her a joke and she l- suddenly burst out laughing while she was mid-gulping down her and wine. spit it out. She spit it out all over my face. And I really did tell myself, I want to do this professionally. There's nothing like a spit take to fuel your... <laughs> Right. Now, are you a married guy? Uh, no, no, I'm divorced. So this was, so you're flirting with a girl. Yeah. Or you're talking to a girl. I'm talking to a whatever girl. Whatever you want to call and it. And I told a joke and then, and, and she apologized. A joke, joke, or you just said something? I just like, said something funny. Said something funny. Yeah, I didn't really tell And she jokes. laughed and it felt good. Yeah, right. She and laughed, it felt different than anything and else. And it was so visceral, she spit all over me. And she felt bad. She wouldn't talk to me again. She apologized so much. And then she just went to the other side of the room. She was embarrassed. Do you, but, are you still in contact with that person? No, no. I, I could barely even remember what she looks like. But except for the fact that she spit all over me, and but that's, I said I want to do story. I want to do stand up comedy. I want people spitting all the time. <laughs> and, and do you so, tell that story on stage? No, I never told. Should I Open tell? Open with that. Yeah. All right. People say why you know people say why am I up here? I'll tell you exactly why. And so so let me ask you this: If you were to turn that Paul McCartney joke into a stand up style joke, how would you do it? Because I, I like that joke, but it's it's not quite stand up style, right? Now, you know, it's it's too beautiful. Um, it's got a classic joke structure. You just tell it in the first person. Yeah, yeah. You know? Oh, uh, yeah, because I have some yeah, work I stuff. For, you know, I have to be, you know, I'm a comedian. I'm trying to be a comedian. You know, I'm not, you know, I, I think I have to do this. Like, I, you know, I'm not good at job interviews. I went for an interview today and uh, and the guy said to me, you know, they are. You're you're into the joke. Yeah, yeah, good. Do it in the I first like person, um, and then if it bombs, you could say, "Fucking Jackie Martling put me on the wrong," and then right. I'm gonna laugh too. Right, you know? that's good. All right, well, uh, Jackie, Jackie the Joke Man Martling, um, Bow to Stern is your book. It's, Let me tell it's, people I, I highly recommended. If you go to JackieTheJokeMan.com, Jackie the Joke Man is one word. JackieTheJokeMan.com. That brings you right to the Amazon page for the hardcover or the Kindle. And the forward is by Artie Lang, but he also does a forward on the Audible uh, audiobook. And the audiobook, it's it, all this stuff is right there, and it's selling well. And I appreciate this interview. And you're a delightful guy. Thank you so much. You know, I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this. I would say doing a podcast is the activity that I've enjoyed most in these past few years. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts 
or Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcast. It will only take a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And it will really show people in general that this is a quality show and then it's worth listening to. You can also check out the show notes at jamesaltitude.com slash podcast. And also, if you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at jamesaltitude.com. Thanks again. I really appreciate you guys. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes.